you know, I say to them, make your life suck a little bit. <laughs> so sometimes that, that helps. Um, because like, if your life is great, you have no drive to do anything to improve it. But like the, the, the big thing I've noticed for a lot of guys when they have their first child is like suddenly this whole, I want to provide a great life for my kid motivation, just like, you know, the hormones give it to us. Like I want a better life, like a really strong drive. And like for a lot of people, it's, getting out of the cubicle like they have a really strong drive to get out of the cubicle and then once they're out it's like well life's actually pretty great i don't have yeah. a strong drive to change it Hey, what's up, you guys? My name is Mikko Karshavsky, and welcome to episode 127 of That Remote Life podcast, where we hear from location-independent entrepreneurs and professionals so you can learn to quit the cubicle and live life on your terms. Today on the podcast, I'm super excited to be joined by Ben McAdam, the founder of Profits Collective and also the ex-co-founder of Bean Ninjas which was one of the first bookkeeping businesses in Australia focused on helping online companies. Today, Ben helps online entrepreneurs get a better understanding of their finances, boost their profits, and achieve their goals. Now, you guys, you will learn three really important things from this episode. Number one, why having a child can be the ultimate productivity hack and how to get the same benefits without necessarily having to have kids first. Number two, how to take the guesswork out of pricing your services and make sure you're not leaving money on the table. And finally, number three, Ben showed me why an hourly rate like $100 or $200 per hour is not actually a high hourly rate and how to achieve an hourly rate of thousands of dollars per hour. You will hear all of this and much more during this interview with Ben. However, before we jump into the interview, I do want to tell you about the Parable Launch Party, which will be taking place on October 8th and 9th from 10 a.m. Eastern Standard Time. The launch party is completely free and you'll be able to hear from some of the top thought leaders in the areas of online business, remote work, and location independence, and you will have the chance to ask them your top questions live. To register to the event, to the event just head over to joinparable.com forward slash launch. Again, that link is joinparable.com forward slash launch. I'm so excited for this launch party. It's going to be a ton of fun to celebrate the launch of Parable with all of you guys, and I hope to see you there. If you can't remember uh, that link or you're not sure how to spell anything, just head on over to the show notes, and the link for the launch party registration page is going to be right there. But all right, you guys, without further ado, let's jump into this awesome conversation with Ben McAdam. All right, Ben, welcome to the show, man. I'm uh, super excited to have you on here. Me too. Thanks for having me. So I am really stoked to have you on because you have quite uh, a detailed, I should say, uh, robust <laughs> entrepreneurial background uh, for people who don't know you. Uh, you used to uh, run a business called Bean Ninjas, which is, uh, I if 
if I can say one of the largest sort of online tax businesses for uh, entrepreneurs and specifically people who are running location independent businesses, which you have since then sold and are now working on your own. And so I'm really excited to sort of dive in uh, deeper on your story and also share some of the uh, you know lessons that you've learned th through that entire uh, that mm -hmm. story. Yeah, no worries. Uh, just minor correction: it's a bookkeeping business. Uh, it's not sure if that makes it less exciting or more exciting, <laughs> or just you know. <laughs> Listen, I so I don't know if this is a bad son moment or anything like that, but my mom is a bookkeeper, and I've always said that she was an accountant, and she always corrects me <laughs> that she's a bookkeeper, and I'm like, I don't know, like I don't understand the difference, mom. And so <laughs> I have to be honest, the entire sort of like bookkeeping, tax, accounting thing just sort of rolls all into one for me, which I don't know what that says about me as a business owner, but you know, how did yep. you? You know, with that sort of background, that's one of, you know, I would say kind of like a more traditional quote unquote background. What mm. made you transition from that into then, you know, running online businesses? And how did you just sort of move into that online business world? Yeah. So I didn't fit in very well with other accountants. Um, that's what I studied at university uh, after a little bit of music education. Um, Studied at university, got a job at a suburban tax firm, and it was kind of boring. Um, working, doing tax returns, being you know the lowest rung. It's like, okay, sure, I'll do that data entry job, no problem. But it's it's boring, and it doesn't have any sense of progress in going somewhere. And so I went and worked in the city in a big accounting firm. Um, it was a mid tier one, and turns out that was boring in a different way. Um, <laughs> so, <laughs> so I went chasing a, a sense of progress in what I do and a, a bit of meaning as well, like, you know, just filling out tax forms, saving people some money, wasn't all that interesting. So from there, I started working in businesses because honestly, that's why I got into accounting in the first place. Someone gave me rich dad, poor dad at a key moment and apparently the lawyer and the accountant see everything. And uh, so if I wanted to learn about business, that was a great vantage point. But um, it turns out that when you, the accountant, you can see a lot, but you can't necessarily change things. Um, you, you know, you're still an what employee, you you're still a team member. Like, you know, you're not the business owner that can make the decisions on how mm. the business should be run. So you can kind of um, like suggest things and say like, hey, here's what the numbers are saying. You should do this. But at the end of the day, you don't really have control over it is what you're saying yeah exactly so for me i had the um was it the entrepreneurial seizure i think they call it in the e-myth book of like not want to do this on my own and in particular for me it was when my first child was on the way and i was at the time only intending to have one and so i'm like okay i've got to get into business and it's got to be an online business because you know i need to be able to work from home um, you know, work from anywhere in the world, but you know, home was it for me so that I didn't waste any time in a commute. And, uh, you know, if baby was doing something interesting, I could like run out of the office and see it. Um, and I wanted to be in charge so that number one, I could guarantee the flexibility. Number two, I could earn a bit more. Um, and number three, just, yeah, wanting to be in charge, wanting to mold my own destiny a little bit. And, uh, and so that's 
what got me from not feeding not fitting in with accountants very well to running my own business. You know, there's been a few people on the podcast who have started their business because there was a kid on the way, right? Like they kind of mm. saw, hey, I'm going to have a kid. I need to start a business in order to have more control over my time and also, uh, you know, mm. the, our, our future. And that to me is so interesting because I couldn't think of a worse time to start a business because <laughs> you essentially have two babies, right? Like you have this one really demanding yeah. thing that's your business. And then on the other hand, you also have this really demanding thing, which is your your child, right? How did you manage doing both, right? Because I'm imagining if you just started a business when you had a kid on the way, that doesn't necessarily give you enough time to get that business to a point where you can step away from it to to take care of a kid. So how did you sort of balance that, uh, you know, game of working on the business and having to put in all that work up front in order to get it going and then also having a kid and what are the like productivity lessons that you learned from that balancing act? Because I'm sure that there must be some. Yeah. Yep. Um, it was, as I thought, really important that whatever I did didn't require a huge number of hours of my time. And so that meant that I needed to earn a very big hourly rate from whatever mm. it was. I, I mean, I, I charged fixed prices. Um, I started, the first thing I started offering was tax services filling out tax returns for people um doing that for businesses the hourly rate is really high and so i only needed to work a couple of hours per week literally two or three hours per week um, for our low lifestyle costs at the time and that meant that it was plenty of time to spend with the baby but it also meant i didn't need a huge number of clients which means that i didn't need to spend a huge amount of time finding clients in the beginning mm. and so that was kind of the key for me that made that it all work in the short term. Um, I did end up spending uh, maybe four or five hours a week finding clients. There was a service I signed up for that basically um, when people were looking for an, an accountant or some other service provider, they put in their details and then it got sent to a bunch of us and we all like raced to the phone and tried to get be the first person to give them a phone call. Um, and for me, I would just like sit while my daughter was playing on the floor or uh, or she was with her mom or uh, or she was asleep or something and I had notifications set up and I would just like hit dial and, and walk out of the room and have a quick conversation with someone. Turned out to not be very hard, um, but I think I was a little bit lucky that number one, that service existed um, and number two, that I knew what I was talking about just enough to convince other people to sign up with me. Um, <laughs> and uh, yeah, just that I guess there are a lot of non-Australian people also as my competitors. So it was kind of like there was a bit of a blue ocean. There wasn't much competition. I think mm. definitely I got lucky managing to line those things up. But also like because there was the baby, I, I had an extremely compelling reason to like get over myself, get over my fear of reaching out to people or possibly being rejected. It was just like I just had to make this work. The stakes were really high. And so that like got rid of a lot of the mind crap out of the way, which mm. uh, which uh, was very helpful <laughs> when starting have a you first found business. Any ways, have you found any ways to like, almost simulate that because again this is another thing that i've heard 
um, from people who have kids is like having kids sort of puts things in perspective and forces mm. you to like, you know, now you have to provide for someone and like, you know, now mm. you need, you have to spend time with someone. So you better not be, you know, surfing YouTube when you should be working, you know? Uh, yeah. Have you found any ways, I know that you work with a lot of entrepreneurs, have you found any ways to like simulate that for people so that, you know, maybe if you don't have a kid, uh, but you can get the benefit of having this, you know, uh, th th this reason to to get over yourself and, and, and to get kicking and to get moving on the business. Yeah, it's I'm, I'm, I'm going to take a roundabout approach to answering that question at first, because I, I always wanted to be a digital nomad. Like I, I know this is what the podcast is about and you've had some great interviews. I've always wanted to be a digital nomad for the exact same reasons that, um, that sense of freedom, the ability to travel, um, not being beholden to those things you don't like about working for other people. Like I did all those things and I just didn't travel. Um, but the interesting thing about the approach of making life suck less is that like it takes away the pressure it takes away the drive a bit um mm. and so sometimes for people you know i say to them make your life suck a little bit <laughs> so sometimes that that helps um because like if your life is great you have no drive to do anything to improve it but like the the, the big thing i've noticed for a lot of guys when they have their first child is like suddenly this whole i want to provide a great life for my kid motivation just like you know the hormones give it to us um mm -hmm. like i want a better life like a really strong drive and like for a lot of people it's getting out of the cubicle like they have a really strong drive to get out of the cubicle and then once they're out it's like well life's actually pretty great <laughs> i don't have yeah. a strong drive to change it so sometimes making it suck a bit a bit or putting yourself in a more expensive environment so like instead of a nice cheap beach in thailand somewhere um or, or somewhere spectacular in eastern europe it's like you go to like one of the large cities in the world like london paris tokyo san francisco new york i'd say sydney uh, toronto like you know one of the big capital cities where it's expensive to have a nice life that and, and then you go there and you're like, oh, I don't want to spend that amount of money. So you have like, you start compromising on things. And then you're like, no, I don't like this. I, you know, I mm -hmm. want to work a bit harder. Like sometimes that making your life suck a bit can help. Um, and it's, I don't know, it's, it feels like a kind of a mean or nasty thing to do to yourself. The other way is like, what do you actually care about? Like everybody has something that is really important to them. And sometimes it's, you know, some hobby thing, but you need money to fund the hobby thing. And so like tying your strong desire to do this hobby to landing the client that you're about to get on a, a sales call with, um, sometimes that can help. Um, or sometimes it's just like, what kind of a difference do you want to make in the world? Like, or for other people or what achievements do you want for yourself or, or what mm. kind of position of influence are, are, are you interested in in the community um, or what do you want to do right you know think about what it is that actually really matters to you and then find a way to make money from that in a way that's congruent with your values and when you start doing that it's like 
you know, having a calling as opposed to just like, oh, I just want to make money so that I can fund a fun lifestyle. That sense of calling gives you the purpose and the drive uh, to make a difference. So when I start working with my clients, the very first thing I ask them is like, what are your goals? What do you want from life? And we spend a bit of time digging into it. Like the first thing people say is, oh, you know, I want $10,000 or whatever it is in personal income a month. I want to sell my business one day so I never have to work again. Like, okay, why? What do you want to Mm. do instead of this business? Maybe we should get you heading in that direction sooner. Um, It's like the Tim Ferriss mini retirement idea. Don't put it off. Go there now. You'll be more motivated that way. Does that make sense? Yeah. I think, you know, what you were saying kind of about, make your life suck a little bit is <laughs> very interesting because it's actually something that I did in in a slightly different way when I dropped out of college because I had this realization that I was headed down this path of like, oh my God, I'm going to be a person who goes to the office at nine, leaves at six. I'm going to, you know, like I just saw this like white picket fence, you know, like very regular mundane life. And I, I was on that path and it just terrified me. And I yeah. knew that I am, I I, ha, I have lazy tendencies enough to the point where like, if I just stay on this well-walked path, I might end up going somewhere where I don't want to be. And exactly. I was like, okay, I need to do mm-hmm. something that causes like a radical shift and make sure that I don't end up there. And so I dropped out of college. And I was like, if I don't have this easy ability to just, you know, like ride the roller coaster through to like, you know, this like very regular life, then like I'm going to have to figure something out. And so it caused a lot of issues and uncomfortability, but, you know, it was the action that I needed to take in order to make sure that I don't end up where I didn't want to go. Yeah, absolutely. I, I like what you said about, you know, if you stayed on the path, you just kind of get carried to that that place Mm -hmm. you don't like um it's like you know you're on a boat relaxing on a nice tropical river i'm like oh this is nice and then like there is a waterfall ahead (laughs) and you got to do something about it but it's so nice and calm and i'm being yeah yeah if you want to talk about the the, you know that at the end thing that you don't want to go for think about tax accounting (laughs) that's that's up there (laughs) as well i think you and i have something in common so how did you then go from, you know, like you were saying, you were, you were getting clients, you had this, um, uh, you know, sort of place to kind of get clients from, right? Like you were saying, there was this sort of service that, that you were signed up for. Uh, I want to hear about how you transitioned from that to then starting being ninjas. But before we do that, <laughs> what would you suggest people do if they, you know, don't have something like that service, right? Like you said that you feel like you got very lucky in the beginning because that existed. If that didn't exist and for many people listening, you know, they're probably wondering like, man, like I'd love to have that option, but it, you know, a lot of people don't. So what would you suggest they do in the very beginning to start getting clients? Yeah. Very beginning. Um, whatever skill you have from your job, like going up work, um, there are lots of people searching for jobs. Honestly, uh, for some people, when they think, oh, I want to hire someone cheap, they go to Upwork. So it is a little harder to earn larger amounts of money off of Upwork. It's not impossible. Um, Upwork's one, if you've got the right skills, TopTal, T-O-P-T-A-L is a good one. Um, that's for more um, 
brain jobs, uh, like developers and you know, there's some accounting financial controller type roles on there. So like jobs that require degrees uh, and a bunch of experience and pay a bit well, TopTal is a good option there. Um, there's a few other platforms, uh, Dynamite Jobs, uh, there's a few get a remote job um, boards out there and recruiters as well that specialize in filling jobs for remote companies. Um, so I think remotivate.io, there's, mm -hmm. um, yeah, there's a few of them out there where if you want a remote job, like there's quite a lot more than there was even like a couple of years ago. Um, so I think I was lucky at the time, but like now you don't need luck quite so much. Um, I mean, you need to know how to best maximize the, the possibility of, of getting a good outcome on each of these places, but there's blog posts and courses and YouTube videos, um, about the steps you need to follow. So like, if you have a skill, then just search how to make money online with skill and there's bound mm. to be a bunch of things. Um, but I would suggest, yeah, Upwork, TopTail, Recruiters be a good place to start. Yeah, I'm a really big fan of anybody who wants to start working online. I think people kind of like tend to overthink things in the beginning and yeah. they're essentially thinking like 10 steps ahead in, instead of exactly what's in front of them. Mm. Uh, and I think, you know, something like an Upwork or even there's now Fiverr Pro um, yeah. are really good options for people to start, yeah. you know, actually doing and testing the thing that they want to do online. And like, yeah, you're going to be trading time for money. And I think there's all of this like idea of like stop trading time for money, but like, no, start there and eventually yeah. work yourself out of that. But, you know, it's, it's very difficult to just go from zero to a hundred right away. Yeah, absolutely. There's a lot of skills you've got to learn. It's kind of like when you study, you finish your schooling in university or college, if you go there and you get into the workplace, there's like, most people are familiar with the idea of soft skills. Like you come with some technical skills, but you don't know how to interact with people in a workplace, mm. how to communicate, how to be professional, how to dress professionally, like all of those soft skills you don't learn until you actually get into the workplace. Um, and it's exactly the same with working online. Like there is some specific soft skills. It's not necessarily dressing, but it might be about profile photos. Um, it's not necessarily about resumes, but it's about profiles and applications and how you fill things out. Like there's a lot of skills there, but honestly, you don't need to be amazing at it before you start. Like a lot of the learning mm -hmm. happens as you do it. Um, so I totally 100% agree with you. Don't overthink it. So how did you then go from, you know, talking about, you know, you, you essentially did that, you didn't overthink it, you started selling a service, but then you were sort of ready to, to move on. So tell me more about mm -hmm. that. Like, how did you transition from, you know, essentially offering these services on your own to then starting uh, a big, what ended up being a very large company with Bean Ninjas? Uh, again, there was a little bit of luck, but when I was first starting on my own, it was, <clears throat> yes, I can do that for you um, and and under, under quoting what I probably should have charged, but it was enough because it's just me. I didn't have to pay for anyone else. Um, and then after about six months of doing that, saying yes to a bunch of things, I noticed that there are a few things that no one seemed to be doing well. So um, tax returns for online entrepreneurs is complicated because 
depends which country they're in. There's some exemptions. And if they sell stuff online, there's like multiple sales tax issues from a lot of different states that they might be operating in or have, uh, have customers in. So like there's extra complications and no one seemed to be all that good at it. People would go to like really big accounting firms and spend what they felt was a you know enormous amount of money and even those people weren't you know, 100% comfortable about it. And it was exactly the same with the bookkeeping part. So not the filling out the tax return, but like the putting all the numbers together so you can look at a report on how well the business is doing. Um, it was the same thing with bookkeeping. In fact, it was worse with bookkeeping. Like, you know, people tried to hire bookkeepers and they wouldn't know. Like, what's what, what what's this? Asana? Uh, uh, Trello, <laughs> what's Trello? And they look it up and they, and they Google it and they look at it and they're like, I still don't know what Trello is. Um, and so it'd just be like a lot of friction for people to work with a bookkeeper who's constantly asking these questions that to the business owner are really obvious. And so I, I noticed this being in an online uh, business community, um, highly recommend communities, by the way. Um, being in an online business community, I noticed this gap in the market. And this is where I think we got a bit lucky or I got a bit lucky again. Um is because it's not often that you see a gap in the market. Like as things change, as the way we, we work change, there's not a lot of competitors and there's a lot of people who need the service. And so being the first in a new market or a new way of doing things gave us a big boost. Um, but just honestly, it was because we knew what our customers needed and what a certain type, like online businesses needed a bookkeeper that wasn't super expensive, knew what was going on, and they also needed a tax account. We didn't do the tax part, but um, there was uh, two or three tax accountants that did really well for the exact same reason. Like there was a gap in the market because of a change in how things worked. And as part of this online community, I found another Australian accountant joined, and I'm like, there, I'm not insane. There's another person like me who's like, I don't like the way accountants normally do things. So we got to talking and it turned out that we both had similar ideas about a bookkeeping service <clears throat> we could then delegate to people so we'd be able to then travel the world with the families. Mm. Um, and so, yeah, that's we just came up with a name in seven days um we did uh what was the book the seven day startup by dan norris mm -hmm. which is basically like okay it's possible in seven days we're accountants we know kind of what's involved so and off we went um and then all we had to do was say hey we're bookkeepers and we understand your online business and we're not super duper expensive and people are like where's the buy button um mm. it was it was fairly easy for a little while um before like everyone else heard about us and heard about how fast we were growing because we posted about it on the blog because that was a thing at the time being transparent in your content marketing. Um, so yeah, it was a, it was a very interesting journey, but it started from just knowing your customers and knowing what they need. Yeah. I love that because one of the things that I talk about when I, when I work with people is like, it's something to consider is how high up the totem pole is your is your business, right? Like with bookkeeping, 
any business that is doing, you know, uh, a, a decent amount of money needs to have a bookkeeper, right? So that's a very mm-hmm. high on the totem pole service. And I imagine this is why it's like you found the need and you said, hey, here it is. And it's a very important mm-hmm. thing to get right in your business. And so the buy button was, was you know, easy to click on. Wow, if you have something yeah. that you're offering that is kind of like, well, this would be nice, but you know, it's not super important doesn't mean that the business isn't viable, but it's a lot harder to like sell. And then also mm. if something happens like COVID, you're going to be a lot easier to sort of be the first service to cut, right? Yeah. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I, I would say to people, you know, don't run off and start a bookkeeping business um, because there are there are sucky reasons about to run a bookkeeping business. Like it's a trusted position. People are not going to switch until their existing bookkeeper screws up. Um, and so, you know, it can be long relationships with people before they switch over. But for us, all bookkeepers sucked uh, because they yeah. didn't understand the business. So like I said, we got a bit lucky. Yeah. I mean, I think you and I had this conversation but before, you know, we jumped to do a podcast, but I had a similar experience with a bookkeeper where he didn't know what a Google doc was. And I was Mm. just like, I need like, this isn't working, right? Like if you don't Mm. know what a Google doc is and how that works, like what else don't you know about my business and what is that costing me? Right? So Mm. uh, I think, I think that you're totally right. It it can be really difficult to switch a bookkeeper, but if you have such a good uh, offer as to like, Hey, your bookkeeper doesn't know what a Google doc is. We do. That's, you Mm. know, that's certainly, a, a pretty, you know, nice offer. I, I'm curious yeah. about one of the things that I'm, you know, assuming and correct me if I'm wrong about uh, the way that Bean Ninjas worked was that you guys were uh, offering a set price, right? You guys weren't mm. charging by the hour. So how do you, you said that in the initial idea of the business, you wanted to almost immediately hire somebody to delegate this work on so that you weren't doing the day-to-day things. So I think one of the things that people struggle with, um, even people who have had a business for quite a while is how do I price a service and offer it as a product and then pay somebody to do it hourly and make sure that I'm staying profitable? Mm, yeah, it, it is a challenge. The term productized service is very popular in online spaces for many years and everybody trying to squeeze their idea into a productized service when it's not really a fit for the concept just because they like this idea of like, oh, it's processes and people and I don't have to do anything sometimes. Um, <clears throat> so there's two big things that people need to really think about. One's applicable to every business and one's only applicable to if you want to make a productized fixed price service, kind of like we do, we did with Bean Ninjas. So I'll start with that one first. Is it has to be a set thing that you do for people. You can't customize it very much, if at all, between clients. Otherwise, you can't set up processes that your team do over and over again with every single client, so they're really efficient at it, and it's really straightforward. So you can hire cheaper people. Um, if you don't like really narrow down what you're doing so that every client gets basically the same thing, if you don't do that, it's going to suck. Um, you're going to be like, okay, I've set my prices. Um, why is it taking so long in sales calls to explain what we do? And why is it taking so long for my team to understand what needs to be done? And, you know, I'm trying to write processes, but like, man, there are so many processes to write. Like it just feels awful. Um, if you don't narrow it down. 
Now, if if you're okay with, you know, you don't want to subscribe to the productized service thing too closely and you want to like think a bit broader about, okay, we're going to be an agency or we're going to provide a service um, or, you know, if you're going to sell a product, um, but we'll stick with the, the service thing for now. Um, if you offer something that's 90% standardized and a little bit customized or 75 percent custom uh, standardized um if it's like almost you know pretty much all standardized but a little bit customized so customers feel valued and you can charge a little bit more of a premium for it um you can make that work um but it does make it harder to have a fixed monthly fee on a pricing table that everyone has to choose one of three options for a fixed monthly fee it's so like that's thing number one is like being very careful about what you're actually offering and making sure mm. that it's fairly standardized. Does that make sense? Yeah. And so essentially the reason why I'm assuming is because when it's standardized, you know roughly how long it's going to take for someone else to do it. So you can kind of like yes. price it accordingly. Yep. You know exactly what the steps are. You know exactly what the skill level of the person needs to be. And you know exactly, you know, if you know what the steps are, you know how a manager can supervise the quality of that work, how the quality of that work can be checked. Like the whole thing becomes a lot simpler. You need, you know, 10 processes instead of 200 processes. Mm. And it means that anyone, anyone in the business doesn't need to be particularly smart or working particularly hard at keeping all the balls in the air and all the different ways, remembering how you do it for different clients. Mm. Mm. And let's stick on this topic of pricing a little bit because, you know, it's something that hits home for a lot of people, right? Is that mm-hmm. how do you determine a price? Like I think with something yeah. that's like a productized pricing or even like your hourly pricing, like, yes, you can look at what other people charge, but you don't necessarily want to base your decision just off of that, right? So how can you decide what to charge for a productized service? Like, you know, do you just look at how much it will cost you to hire somebody uh, that's competent at it and then add on a couple of percent? Or like, is, you know, is there some (laughs) sort of way that is better that you would suggest? Yeah, absolutely. Um, There's two ways of thinking about it, top down and bottom up. But before I do that, I want to say what people do when they first start out is that they will quote whatever price actually gets them the sale. Um, and that's that's kind of okay. Uh, like you need clients, you need practice at learning what they need and what's involved in delivering the work and it's worth sacrificing a little money in order to get a sale across the line. But you can't do that if you want someone, if you want to pay someone else to actually do the work for you or you want to have a team with managers to like totally take everything off your hands, you need to think a lot more carefully about it. So there's bottom down and top, sorry, top down and bottom up ways of thinking about it. Bottom up is, okay, what's actually involved? How many hours does it take? Multiply that by an hourly rate of somebody. And then, as you said, add some extra money on top. And there you go. There's your price. Um, People usually fall down here because they don't know the how much extra to put on top bit Mm. or the the bit that they guess um, ends up sending them broke uh, after not too long. So like there are a lot of things that your pricing needs to pay, needs to cover apart from the person who does the work, Uh, needs to pay for the marketing and sales time, effort, investment that it took to get the client. So the marketing sales effort of the clients who didn't sign up plus the one that actually did, all all that needs to be covered in the price. Otherwise, 
you won't be able to pay yourself for that time that you're getting the new client. You won't be able to pay anyone else to get a client either. It needs to cover, there's all your other expenses like software, like you know, credit card processing fees, like your website hosting or your memberships to XYZ and your own education, like all that needs to be in the price as well. And if you want to grow the business without having to massively jack up your prices as you do, like you need to be able to pay for managers as well to manage the people doing the work. Um, so like there's a lot of things that pricing needs to cover. I've got a blog post with the full list, um, but like that's why people kind of fall down. It's like number one, they don't realize that price needs to pay for this. And then number two, they don't know how to work out how to actually pay for all those things. Like how much is it? You could sit with a pen and paper and, and try and work it out. If you're an accountant, there are basic things we get taught in the first year that you can use to work this thing out. Um, but for me, it's you multiply the cost of the person doing the work. If whatever their cost is to do the client work, you multiply it by at least three. There's the magic number. Mm. People are, Some people are going to hear that and go, no way could I charge that amount of money. So like start with multiplying it by two you know, but at least three, if you multiply it by at least three, then as your business grows and scales, you'll be able to pay for everything. And so that like essentially tripling of the price of somebody else to do it is what you're saying mm -hmm. should cover all of those costs that you mentioned, like the cost of, yep. you know, marketing and, you know, like the software and all that kind of stuff. You kind of are yeah. guessing quote unquote that it, that it should cover those. I've, I've found it to be pretty consistent that not only does right. it cover those, it covers the owner just for being an owner, not for the work that they're mm. doing, not just for the work that they're doing. Um, and there's money left over. Um, mm. It's a good rule of thumb that works only for an online service business because we don't have to worry about paying rent and right. all that kind of nonsense. Yeah, I think the other thing as well is I totally agree with this. Like I think you know, you need to start at whatever you need to start in order to get mm. clients to get some experience under your belt. And I think there's a lot of conversation in this online business world of like, you're not charging enough and you need to be charging mm. more. And, and I totally agree with all of that, right? With most people, like you mm. need to be charging more, but in the beginning, you got to charge where you got to charge to get clients. Yeah. And maybe that means you're going to get the short end of the deal, for you know a, a few clients and a few projects but you need that in order to kind of like get your feet wet when yeah. should people raise their prices when do people know like what are some of the signs that people can look out for that should tell them like hey it's time for you to raise your prices yeah i got a couple um <clears throat> when you're getting busy is a great time because then you don't care if the prospect says, no, I, that's too expensive for me. Mm. And so that fear that always makes you automatically discount before you even say the, word, the, the number out loud, like that's gone. Like you don't care. Best time uh, is when you're, you're almost too busy. Um, then another way to think about it is if you're selling on a sales call or applications or proposals or whatever it is and everyone says yes, it means your price is too low. Um, you should be only getting like 70% of people saying yes. Um, and the other 30% should be saying, actually, you're a bit too expensive. Um, mm. There's a good rule of thumb as well. So like if you're not busy and everyone says yes, you can creep up your price a little bit. Um, 
Mm. And people will probably still keep saying yes. Um, and then, yeah, when you're busy, you'll be brave. I also think there is something interesting that happens when you do raise your prices where you actually end up getting more clients. Like my wife, for example, she's been um, working with um, online course creators for quite a while. And a friend kind of saw what she was charging. You know, she kind of like just did it on the side, like, you know, just for a little extra, you know, like uh, the, you know, to cover the beer tab on the weekends and that kind of stuff. And uh, a friend saw what she was charging. She said like, you need to raise your prices. And the moment that she did, all of a sudden, all these new clients came out and they were trusting her with way more work because of the value that she was placing on her skill set. Like all of a sudden mm -hmm. way bigger clients came out that were looking for somebody who was more trustworthy and everything mm. that she said almost like carried more weight, if that makes sense. Oh yeah, absolutely. Um, when people start out, they're like, they take the shortest path to get a client and mm -hmm. the shortest path to get a client is quote a cheap rate to a cheap customer. Um, mm. because a cheap customer will, will jump on someone who looks amazing but is charging a cheap amount. Like they're the people that move the fastest. Um, and so it's really hard, but wonderful if you can make this transition to going after bigger clients um, that are happy to pay more for basically the same thing. Um, mm -hmm. Because, you know, it's your effective hourly rate goes up. You can spend more on higher quality staff to do a, a higher quality service. Um, and one of the things that, most people don't really understand is that bigger clients will get turned off if you're too cheap. Like they'll say no if you're mm -hmm. too cheap because they will automatically assume and they'll be right that if they're not paying you enough, you can't possibly do the quality job that they want. Um, like, you know, if you go to a, you know, fortune 100 company and say, I'll do your website for $2,000 like no way absolutely no way They're like why did you waste our time like we need an amazing website that's going to provide a fantastic result and you can't possibly do that for two thousand dollars there you know um and so like raising your prices for bigger clients can actually increase the number of conversions that increase how seriously they take take you and how much they refer you and like life can just be a lot easier once you have that realization and it's very hard to work your way up there um if you're used to the cheapest price gets the client kind of mentality down at the commodity levels so what i suggest is like every every call that you have you raise your price a few percentage points raise a little raise a little raise a little and then it does you know it's not too far outside of your comfort zone and then as you say see that every time you raise your price, it doesn't seem to affect how often people say you're too expensive. Like, oh, okay, I could raise it some more. And then that's when you start realizing, oh, when Ben said that you should, you know, 30% of people should say you're too expensive, he was right. I'm like, mm. I, I could just keep raising this thing. And like, I've had clients I've explained this to, and like they've doubled their prices and then doubled them again and still signed up the same number of clients. And Initially, you're like, why? Why did you pay this much? You could have paid some you know, <laughs> cheaper with like this person on Upwork. And they're like, we didn't, we didn't want cheap people on Upwork. Like we want someone we trust to do a great job. Um, and we're willing to pay for that. And so, yeah, it's a big, 
big transformative thing can make a big difference um, for your business and for the amount of money that you earn and the amount of hours that you work. To kind of stay on this topic of pricing a little bit longer, um, how do you justify a value-based price? Because one of the things mm. I think that happens is if, if you're good at what you do, you know, you may look at a project and say, okay, this realistically will only take me, let's say, five hours. And even if you're charging a hundred bucks an hour, that's only five hundred dollars. But you know that what you're delivering as a product is, you know, very, very, you know, uh, valuable to that business. So, like, how do you then determine that price where you're like, okay, even though I've, you know, I don't want to, you know, you're kind of selling more of a product, and you know how long it's going to take you. How do you then val? How do you put a price on that sort of situation? Yeah, this is the better way to price. So I said before that there was bottom up and top down, and now we're about to talk about top down. Just as a quick reminder, bottom up was how much is it going to cost a team member to do it? Multiply by three. Hmm. That's like kind of a bare minimum for you to have a viable business, but you can often charge quite a lot more, um, especially if you've got a marketing service or some service that provides a really obvious they get more benefit than the price that they pay you kind of a thing. Um, so top-down or value-based pricing is you start with a price and then you work out how to make it profitable afterwards. And by starting with the price, you there's a number of ways you could do it. Like you can look at your competitors and see like how much they're charging and then price accordingly. You can have a think about the value that you're creating. So if you're a business coach, for example, who can work with a client, charge them $10,000 a year and get them an extra $100,000 of profit, not naming any names, um, then that's kind of a no-brainer for people and it's one hell of an hourly rate for the person delivering that service. Um, that's not my actual rates, for example, you know, just to be clear. <laughs> right, right, right. Um, <laughs> There's something different, yeah. Um, but you know, if you're a marketer and like you charge someone two thousand dollars a month to do email copywriting, uh, like you write the emails that sell somebody's course, for example, you charge two thousand dollars a month, and because of your writing, this person earns fifty thousand dollars a month because of these emails that you're writing for them. You could probably charge a little bit more than two thousand dollars in that case. Mm. Um, there's a couple of different rules of thumb. It does depend on the industry a bit. Um, usually for marketing, you could charge 10% of the revenue result that you generate. Um, if you're doing ads, then the cost of the ads also needs to be included in this 10% for some clients. For some, they don't care. Um 10%, anywhere between 5 and 15% of the result that you generate is a good rule of thumb that you can use. Um, and then, you know, to continue with the top-down method, you then say, okay, this is the price I'm going to charge. You divide it by three. This is how much I can spend on the team that's actually going to do the work. Um, mm. So it's kind of like that, that number three is coming back, but we're looking at it from a different angle. Does that make sense? Yeah, yeah. I... I also like, um, you know, one of the other things that I've like talked with people about is like, and I think the email example works really well with this is also like, look at, you can also measure like how 
much more money? How much higher a percentage of conversions are you getting or are you expecting mm. to get based on your updates? And then, you know, if you know what your client charges for different services, what does that percentage actually mean in terms of money? And then, you know, if it's going to, mm. if you work out that it's going to be $50,000 more, you can very easily say, okay, well, then in that case, I'm going to charge you 20K for it or something like that. Yeah, exactly. And this is tying back to what I was saying earlier about the bigger clients. Um, you can do the exact same thing for and charge them a lot more because like the email copywriter, for example, writes a great email for someone who has a list of a hundred people or the email copywriter who writes a great email for someone who has a list of 1 million, like they're going to write exactly the same thing and it's going to get a lot bigger result. Um, so like you have a certain skill set, and it's more valuable to certain types of customers and because it's more valuable to them, you can then charge more for that service. Um, does that make sense? Yeah, absolutely. How do you suggest that people make this transition from, you know, I think services like Upwork are very good even for, for higher priced services. Uh, I've seen people mm -hmm. on Upwork that charge, you know, in the $100, $200 per hour range. Uh, obviously, they have very high level skills. How do you suggest that people... Sorry, I just want to Go pause ahead. you there. That in my mind is not a high price. <laughs> That's a high price so for what Upwork. Is, uh -huh. A high price would be thousands of dollars per hour. Like that, that would be a high price. Um, and that's what the email copywriter example uh, example could get, for example. Sorry for interrupting. I no, just that's, to that's totally fine. So I, I think that's interesting that in terms of, I think a lot of people, myself included, have uh, a skewed understanding of what is a high price per hour for quality yeah. work, right? Because even for me, like 100, 200 bucks an hour, if you're doing copywriting is a relatively high price, but you're saying, no, it, it could be far higher and businesses are okay with paying that. Yeah, absolutely. Um, I've had a few email copywriter clients who charge five to $10,000 per month for four emails um, mm. that they then pay team members at a hundred to $200 an hour to do. And there is a crap ton of money left for the business owner who's done nothing but landed the sale. Um, a hundred to 200 an hour. I, I think the problem is perhaps thinking in terms of hourly rates as opposed to mm. flat fees for a result. So if you're like, I'm the world's best copywriter and so I'm going to charge $500 an hour even, that's not actually the hourly rate of the world's best copywriters. Right. Um, the world's best copywriters, their hourly rate is hundreds of thousands of dollars. Um, like it's, it's mind-blowingly insane, um, but they don't actually talk about hourly rates. They say, all right, who are you? You have um, you know, 10 million people on your email list and you're launching a course that's going to potentially earn you, you know, 5 million from the one launch. Mm. Yeah. I'm going to charge you 500,000 to write the email sequence and I'm going to, oh, here's another client I've done this for. I'm going to use these and I'm going to tweak it for this client and I'm going to put, you know, a bunch of in there and I'm going to maybe spend a couple of hours interviewing the the people on the email list. But it's like yeah, $500,000 and it's 10, 20, maybe 50 hours work even. Mm. Um, and still like that's an enormous hourly rate. Um, but it's because... 
you're starting with like charging a percentage of the value that the person gets from it and it has absolutely nothing to do with the time it took to do it. Um, there's a, a meme out there and there are a billion different variations of it, of the story of some an engine mechanic for a Navy boat or whatever who comes, finds out, uh, you know, the engine's broken down or whatever the term is for Navy boats. Uh, and he comes and he's like, he spends a couple of minutes looking at it and he does a light tap and says $10,000, thank you. Um, and they're like, ah, what is all this? And, then, <laughs> uh, and, and can you send us an itemized invoice? So he does. Okay. And on the first line of the invoice, he says, tapping the engine $1, all the years of experience to know where to tap $9,999. Um, like n- the fact that you can get a result quickly is great. That shows you're a master of what you do. And the people who want a quick result are willing to pay a lot of money to have the res- everything just work and to get the result that they want. So like just thinking in terms of hourly rates, like I don't think about my hourly rate anymore. I mean, I, I did kind of with being ninjas and I did kind of with the tax stuff, but it's like, I, you know, if I'm going to make someone millions of dollars, then like they don't care what my hourly rate is either. I think it also, comes down to perspective in some way. Like I, I totally agree with you that, you know, there's, if you start out from like a percentage and like what you're going to be adding to as in terms of value to businesses is, is one way to get there. I think the other important thing here is perspective, knowing what mm. businesses are paying for already. Uh, mm. It's interesting because one of my friends has spent time working with very large companies that say they're startups, but in basically in every reality, they're not startups anymore, if you know what I mean. But mm. one of the things is he's like, you know, we have different backgrounds and that he's worked with a lot of these large, you know, funded startups and he knows what they're paying for some things. And then on mm-hmm. the other hand, I didn't have that experience. I sort of started from the bottom and he's like, you know, knows that, you know, somebody's charging tens and tens of thousands of dollars for something that other people are offering for very little money. And he has, because he has that perspective, he knows that he can charge more for certain services than some of his competitors. That's worked out uh, well. And I think this is why, you know, uh, podcast listeners have probably heard me talk about Parable before, but that's one of the things that I was really excited about in terms of showing like, hey, look at what's going on behind the scenes Mm. of some of these businesses because having that perspective and knowing, you know, oh, you're charging, you know, this much and it's still working because the businesses Mm. see value in it or, oh, you're paying that much for this service. That means that there is room to start something. So, uh, Mm. yeah, I I totally agree with that. Uh, We're sort of running out of time here, which is insane because I want to talk about Bean Ninjas and I feel like there's so much more that we can talk about, but maybe we'll do an episode two with the entire Bean Ninja story. But I know that you do quite a bit of um, kind of business coaching and, and, you know, uh, some things around goals and how to set proper Mm. expectations. And I do want to touch a little bit on that because I think it's really important to understand how to properly set good goals. So what are some of the mm. mistakes that you see people make and how can we as online entrepreneurs, you know, like you're saying, understanding how to set goals for yourself if you're, you know, a nine to fiver is one thing, but understanding how to yeah. do it as an online entrepreneur and a digital nomad is a completely different thing. So what are some of the mistakes that people make when setting goals and how can we as location-independent entrepreneurs set better goals? 
Yeah, there's, there's, yes, we could do a whole podcast episode on this. Um, like most of my <laughs> clients, I start with a two hour session to cover, cover this stuff. I, I think setting goals, I want to blame news resolutions, I think, um, <laughs> for, for what I'm about to say. Is news resolutions, it's like you're at the start of a new year, anything's possible, and so you set this pie-in-the-sky goal of like, I want to see my abs this summer um, or, or something like that. And you're like, okay, I'm going to – the first thing I'm going to do is I'm going to sign up to the gym and then I'm never going to go. Mm-hmm. Um, there's kind of this disconnect between the goal, the plan, and, and, and reality – um, like most people, they set a goal and the first thing they do is they go spend money and then they're done. Like, you know, they don't do anything else. Um, thank you, consumer culture. Um, what I suggest that people do is like, don't just have like a hope kind of a goal of like, you know, wouldn't it be nice if we could like not have to work? Wouldn't it be nice if we could, you know, have so much money from our investments or the sale of a business that we never have to work again? Like, yeah, that's my goal is to sell my business for enough money that I never have to work again. And like, quote unquote, that's their goal. Like, that's what they write down. Sell my business for enough money to never work again. And the problem is that's not specific. Um, so they don't know what that number actually is. And so there's no way they can build a plan to achieve that number. So there's, there's an acronym. It's fairly popular. It's SMART, S-M-A-R-T. And there's different versions of it, specific, measurable, achievable, no, specific, measurable, action-based, yes, uh, realistic and and time-based. And it's like five criteria to evaluate and improve the way you've written down your goals. There's a Wikipedia article, so I won't do a little sermon on that. But the basic idea is you've got to make your goals more concrete um, and the thing I do with my clients and I'll, I'll give the basic process here. That's really helpful is if your goal, let's take the example of sell the business for enough money that you never have to work again. Let's actually get specific. How much money do you need in this lifestyle where you're never working again? Like how much income do you need? If it's a hundred thousand dollars a year to pick a random round number, say it's a hundred thousand dollars a year like actually think about it well i want to live here and i want to be able to travel and do all these things because i'm not going to have any work to fill my days so i'm going to want to do a lot of stuff and it's all going to cost this much so let's say it's a hundred thousand dollars that you you actually work it out of how much it will be maybe it's 200 maybe it's 50 whatever the amount is work it out round it up a little bit in case you've forgotten something but work it out that's your after-tax income so whatever your tax rate is you can you know bump up the income amount by that amount then you say okay well this money i'm earning for investments let's you know use a four percent safe withdrawal rate which is a figure people can google mr money mustache did a great blog about it four percent so okay you know a hundred thousand you add a little for the tax and then you divide it by four percent and that's the amount of invested capital you need and you can go a step further and you can say well if we need that much invested we need to sell the business for a certain amount so that after the taxes on the sale of the business, we have that amount to invest. So then you know, you're adding a little bit extra and you're finding out what you actually need to sell your business for. And then you can keep going. You can say, well, if we need to sell the business for 2 million, 3 million, 4 million, which honestly is about the number that most people need for the never have to work again number. 
somewhere between two and four million. Like, okay, if we need to sell the business for that much, what does that tell us about the business at the point it's sold? It tells us that there's X million dollars in revenue, there's X million in profit or hundred thousand, X hundred thousand in profit for the for a buyer to want to be able to pay that. It depends on the business you're running. There's you know multiples the way it is. Um but depending on the business you're running, you can actually work backwards and say, this is the amount of revenue I'm aiming for. Based on your prices, you can say, this is the amount of customers I need. And then you can kind of, once you've got the amount of customers that, to aim for in order to hit your never work again goal, like suddenly you've got a number you can plan on. You can say, okay, if I need 50 customers at X price, 50 customers, yeah, a bit too much for me to handle on my own. In fact, I'll probably need three staff to handle that. Here's the price of those staff. Um, if it's like five staff or more, you're also going to need to hire a manager. Like you can start building a super concrete image of what your business is going to look like. And then you can work towards it. Like if you need a certain number of clients and you want to sell your business in two years, well, you kind of work backwards. I need to sign up X clients per month on average mm. to hit that goal. Is that a reasonable target? Do I think I can actually achieve that? Maybe not now. Maybe you're not so good at signing up clients, but it will ramp up over time. Or maybe it's just a bit unrealistic and you're like, okay, what am I going to do differently so I can still sell my business in two years and never have to work again? So like once, you know, we've taken this, I'd like to never work again because I sold my business. We've taken it. We've actually gotten specific, more and more specific. Then you you know where the gaps are of like, I don't know how to sign up 10 clients per month. I'm going to go do a course on that. That's, you know, $200. And like suddenly everything that you do in your business to grow your business, every new client that signs up, you're like, I'm much closer to never having to work again. Like, you know, you know the exact number you're aiming for. And this mm. ties back to the motivation question you asked me earlier, like for people who don't have a baby. Like if you do this exercise, like motivation is a lot easier to come by, partly because you can see that you're making progress and you can see how to make progress. But also because for most people, when I do the calculation, it's not as far off as they thought. Mm. It's like, oh, I I only need a $2 million revenue business, not a $50 million revenue business. Oh, okay. Yeah. Whew. That feels much more achievable. And like all the fear and the paralysis and everything goes away and the excitement takes over. Like, awesome. Mm. Like, you know, I can see the clear path and I, I know exactly what I'm going to have to do or I know exactly the things I need help for. I tend to talk a lot about this because I'm really passionate about like I've seen the amazing effect it, it has. Like I used to say to people at the end of this session, like, do you want my help? Do you, do you want some support to keep going with this? And every single time they would say yes, because like they're really motivated and they can see exactly what mm. they need. Um, people can do this on their own. Like I've given the framework. Um, you know, I have a couple of special numbers that make it easier, but you can find these if you really want to do it yourself. And I suggest everybody do that with their goals, get specific and find a way to break it down into like, what do I need to achieve? What are my milestones every month in order for me to hit that exact goal in the time that I want? Yeah, I think, I, I think that that's like, there's really three 
important things in terms of goal setting for me, just like while you're talking, it's like, yeah, like making them specific and, and, and understanding all, all of the stuff that we just talked about, because like, yeah, I want to see my six pack abs in you know, eight months is like, okay, great. But like, how are you going to do that? And like, what does that mean? Yeah. And like, where are you at right now? And you know, there's so much unknown there that I can almost mm. like guarantee that you're not going to get that. The other thing is also, you know, like you said, breaking it down and actually taking that goal and, and like, figuring out, okay, well, how are you going to do that? Right. What does that mean? Like, mm. are you going to go to the gym three times a week? And like, what are you going to eat? And like, you know, all that kind of stuff, like figuring out mm. what are the actions and actually following them. But the one thing that I think is kind of difficult to get right is understanding like how, how do I say this? Like it sometimes it's almost you don't know what you don't know yet, right? And so setting mm. these like year-long goals, I think, is really tough for people because there's so much unknown that you can set the goal, you know, or like the action being like, hey, I'm, here's what I'm gonna do, but you don't know how time is gonna affect that and how that's gonna have to change. And you know, you kind of there's no way that you can know that something's going to happen. I don't know if this is making a lot of sense, but essentially there's a lot of variables. The longer the goal is, there's a lot of variables at play that could change everything. So kind of wrapping up the goal setting, you know, question, how can people, you know, keep an eye out for that and, and, and essentially work those variables that are going to happen, but maybe they, they don't know what they are. How can they work those into their goals? Yeah. So if you do the process that I mentioned of like, you know, the, the, you know, what number of clients your business needs to have when you sell it and you work backwards, like you have a, you know, in this month, I need to have this many clients on board in this month. I need to have this many clients on board. Don't tie it to a specific date. Um, and that will help with a lot of the derailing. Because, yeah, things are going to slow down or speed up. Nothing's a, a smooth ride and you might decide to change course completely. So if you just say like month one as opposed to like August 2021, um, mm. in month one, I need to have this many clients. In month two, I need to have this many clients. Making it more of a milestone-based sense of progression with a loose association to dates. So like, you know, Milestone number one is, you know, I have X clients and I'm starting to hire my first person to help me deliver the work. I expect that'll probably happen in three months from now, you know, call it just say October instead of three months. Um, I think that, you know, I expect that'll happen in October and use the date as more of a sense of like, if this is, if it looks like it's going to take longer than that, there must be something going wrong and then you go into like fix it mode to try and find where the problem mm -hmm. is, get some extra help, that kind of thing. As opposed to like if you actually put dates on everything and then like you miss one and then suddenly it's like you, you give up the whole goal, your motivation could unravel. Um, so I think there's a saying, have strong beliefs lightly held. Or something mm. like that. It's like you believe passionately about something, you work really hard, you're motivated, but you can change your mind. You, you know, you can be a bit flexible. I think. Yeah. You're open like to helpful. adjusting based on new information. Yeah. Yep. Absolutely. Yeah. I'm also a really big fan of, and this has made a lot of difference for me when I started doing it, uh, is, and I'm not an expert in it in any way, but kind of doing like quarterly 
resets, you know, and kind of like, mm. okay, like what happened this quarter? What do I want to do next quarter? And like, do I want to adjust? You know, what has happened over mm. the last three months? And, you know, does that change my beliefs and like my my goals in any way and kind of adjust that way? That's been really helpful for me because like for me, a year is like, it's such a long amount of time that I have no idea, you know, what could happen. And so for me, yeah. kind of looking at it in these little chunks of quarters has been really helpful to me. Um, yeah. But Ben, listen, this has been an absolute blast. Uh, we're going to have to do, uh, you know, uh, a second interview sometime to, to cover the, the sure. Bean Ninja story. But let people know if anybody has been listening and is interested in in learning more about you, finding out more about your services and, you know, just in general connecting with you, where can they find you on the internet? Yeah. So my website is profitscollective.com. And if you misspell that, I do have a couple of the other domains that point you the right way. Profits Collective. Um, on the website, I've actually got a couple of calculators on there. Like you fill in a couple of points and I give you some strategies on how to improve your business, how to earn a bit more from it. Um, because at the moment I have a mission for 2021, I want to find 10 million, help people get 10 million in extra profits across all the people that listen to what I say on podcasts or the clients that I help more directly. So this is something that I'm trying at the moment, this idea of like, you know, give me a couple of details and I'll help you get out of the hole or help you move a bit faster than you thought. Mm. Um, or people can find me on Facebook. Um, we'll have links in the show notes, I'm sure. Mm -hmm. Um, but yeah, website or Facebook, best places to get me. I am on LinkedIn, but you know, if you message me, please don't look like someone who's about to spam me with their wonderful <laughs> service that I don't actually need. <laughs> or trying to hire you. I always get people trying to hire me. Okay. Yeah, we've got this Which great is job like, for you. No. Yeah, yeah. <laughs> that's, right, that's right. Well, Ben, seriously, thank you so much. Uh, this has been an absolute blast. Uh, thanks for coming on the podcast. My pleasure. I had a good time.